that'll do. I love the church. Do you love the church? I love the church because Jesus loves the church. I love it because he has put it together. He has ordained it. He is the one who is building the church. There are many things about the local church that I do not enjoy, but that does not or it should not detract from the love that I have for what God is doing through the church. I'm sure as you look around this church, you can identify issues, problems, disagreements, people that you don't like. But I think when we really take a moment to think about it, do you love the church? The Lord Jesus loved the church so much that he was willing to lay down his life for it. He was willing to come to this earth not as one who sought to be served, but to serve. And so in his life, we get to see the love that he has for people, and we get to see the love that he has for the group of people that he has drawn together and he calls us to be ministers in his church. He wants us to take an active part in the things that are going on in this world through the church. And there are certain things that can only be done by the church of God in this world. The biggest businesses in the world, even if they have some sort of Christian undertones, cannot do what God has called us to do in his church. The most significant and impactful political parties cannot do what God is doing through the church. There is a lot that is going on in this world that cannot be done outside of the work of the church. And now we recognize that there is a church at large. This is a body of believers that transcends this building, that transcends this city, community, state, country. It is a global church known as the Bride of Christ, and known as the Household of God. And you and I are a part of that church if we have been brought in by the blood of Christ. But there is also a local church that he has established here in Claremont. There's a local church that I am privileged to be part of over in Buena Park, just about half an hour from here. There are other churches represented here from L.A. and probably other places. But God has left the church with a huge amount of responsibility. Part of the responsibility that he gives to the church is to grow in unity, to be able to look past the flaws of one another and to say, I am committed to what is going on here because this is a God-ordained organism. The idea comes to mind in our culture we have Unfortunately, a lot of marriage and divorce and remarriage. And, and we kind of, we breed this through our dating culture and through our lack of commitment. And so when we consider our culture at large, we see that when people get tired of one another, 
after having been married for a few months or a few years, they move on to the next person. And we see that mentality in the church where we are not willing to make a long-term commitment to what is going on because there might be something better out there. And there are a significant amount of issues here in the local church. And so if we can just bounce around for a few years at a time from church to church, we can always find something that's newer, something that's more novel, something that interests us and pleases us more. But that's not God's desire for our participation in the church. Now, I can't out rule out the possibility that God moves people from place to place and that they have ministries that might be short-term in different areas. But the truth is God wants us to be established and be committed to the work of the church. And one of the things that the church does that nothing and no one else can do outside of the church is demonstrate who God is to the world. We have the message of truth. We know who the Lord Jesus is. We understand we are the keepers of the gospel. And we can live out in our lives and in our community what it looks like to have a relationship with God. To demonstrate to others what it means to be a Christian. And we see in the marriage relationship a correlation between the way Jesus loves the church and how he cares for her in the way that a husband cares for a wife. And so when people look at marriages of people inside the church, do they see a representation of what Jesus has done for the church? But when he, people look at our churches, do they say, wow, they've got something of value. They've got reality there that we just don't see elsewhere. But even though there are issues, and even though we don't do this perfectly, the Lord is gracious with us. And he, he loves the church, and he wants us to love the church as well. The last time I was here, I spoke from 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to continue in that vein this evening. So if you want to open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3, the question that I would like to answer this evening has to do with who does the work in the church? As a living organism, as a place where people gather together, there's naturally going to be work that flows out of it. And so one of the big questions that I want to talk about tonight is, who has God chosen to do the work in the local church? But in addition to that, I want to talk about what the church is. And so I'm going to take our passages, or the sections that I have this evening, in reverse order. Because I think one lays a really nice foundation for the other. Um, let's begin by reading them in order. We're going to start in verse 8 of 1 Timothy chapter 3 and read to the end of the chapter. So please follow along with me as I read. Deacons, likewise, should be worthy of respect, not hypocritical, not drinking a lot of wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. They must also be tested first. If they prove blameless, then they can serve as deacons. 
Wives, too, must be worthy of respect and not slanderers, self-controlled, faithful in everything. Deacons are to be the husbands of one wife, managing their children and their own households competently. For those who have served well as deacons acquire a good standing for themselves and great boldness in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I write these things to you, hoping to come to you soon. But if I should be delayed, I have written so that you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. And most certainly, the mystery of godliness is great. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Now let's open with a word of prayer, and then we'll get into our passage. Heavenly Father, I'm so grateful that when the Lord Jesus came to this earth, he chose men and women to be his disciples, and he commissioned them to go and make more disciples and to build your church. Father, we're grateful that your church has this lasting, enduring legacy here on this earth, for it is one of those things that will not go away until the Lord Jesus returns. We're also grateful that we can be a part of it. And so as we look at this, your word tonight, we pray that you would help us to understand what Paul, through your spirit, is intending to communicate, and that we might be convicted of the role that we have, and that we might be encouraged both to love the church and to be willing to serve the church. So help me as we communicate these things. In Jesus' name, amen. The letter of 1 Timothy was written by Paul to his son in the faith, Timothy. Timothy was left in Ephesus by Paul probably after one of their journeys, and he was given a certain amount of responsibility in this area. It's not clear as to whether Timothy was a part of a single local church or whether in the city of Ephesus there were multiple churches. But regardless, Timothy was left there to do work. Part of what Timothy was left there to do was to teach those who had the ability to teach not to teach false doctrine. So he was to take a stand as the pillar of the truth. His goal was to make sure that those who had a leadership role in the church were doing the right thing with it. Those who had the platform, so to speak, were speaking the truth. And this is very necessary because over time and throughout Scripture, we see that false teachers have a tendency of creeping into a church unnoticed to promote false doctrine. And so Paul wants Timothy to serve in this local area for a finite amount of time, it would seem. We get into 2 Timothy, and, and Paul is calling Timothy away from his ministry in Ephesus. But while he is there, Paul is telling him, I want you to take a stand for what is true, and I want you to be an encouragement to the believers. Help the believers understand what their role is in the church and in the world. Now that they've been taken out of darkness and brought into light, they need help in understanding what their roles ought to be. But Paul also writes here in verses 14 to the end of the chapter. 
He says, I have written you because I might be delayed, but I want you to know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the foundation of the truth. As I've been studying through this and over some time, I've really come to enjoy this description of the church. We've heard of the church as the body of Christ, and that's a beautiful picture all on its own. But what we see here is Paul is saying that the church of the living God is God's household. So if you will go back with me in history to a time when governors lived in mansions and they had a house full of servants or slaves and they had a wife and they had their children, we get a really neat picture of what a household looks like. In our day and age, a household is just maybe just a husband and a wife and their kids. But if you take a step back, you see that in olden days, they had grand households. There was the master of the house, and he made the decisions. And then he had his wife, and they had their family. And so there was a structure and an order within that. But also he would have servants who would help keep the household running. And so each person who lived in this household had things to do. The man of the house had things to do in providing for his servants and providing for his family and making decisions. The wife of the house had things to do in raising her children in an appropriate way and overseeing what went on inside. The butler had a certain thing to do. The cook had a different task to do. But there was no one who just kind of sat around in the household. Everyone had a job to do. Even the children had jobs to do. They had their chores, and they had the responsibility of going to school, and they had the responsibility of learning how they were to behave in the household. They didn't often just get to float around and do whatever they wanted to do. There were probably some households where that was true. But within the structure of a household, it may have been a steward's job to train the children, to prepare them for beneficial service outside the household, or in their own household in the future. And so no one was idle. If you were being idle, then you were going to be in trouble. If the cook just sat back and decided, hey, I'm not really into this cooking thing anymore, I'm not going to do it, they would probably either be let go on the spot or had some conversations with the master of the house, encouraging him, if you still want this job, we need you to do what you have been hired to do. And so we see the church of the living God. And this is, this is different from buildings dedicated to dead idols. This is a, an organism. This is something that's alive. This is something that is doing work. This is something that is being productive. This is the household. This is the church of the living God but it's described as his household. And so when we take a view of the church, we see God at the top and Jesus Christ as the head of the body. And then we see leaders being put in place over the church, but then we see the rest of the people all with something to do. And so Paul writes to Timothy to remind him, hey, 
within the church in Ephesus, people should not just be sitting around. There are other instructions in other books that talk about how young women who, if they have been widowed, they have a tendency of becoming gossips and busybodies, wasting their time just walking around, chit-chatting with people. And Paul writes to say, that shouldn't be the case. Encourage them to get married. Encourage them to do something productive with their time. Not just to waste it, not just to tear one another down, but be doing something. Young men also have a, a role in the church. They need to be learning on the one hand, but also encouraging the others who are around them. And so we see that in God's household, there's something for everyone to be doing. And Paul writes, I have written so that you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household. And so this kind of lays the foundation. This is what I would consider the theme statement of the book of 1 Timothy. So as you study through it on your own, you can come back to this and continually go back and ask yourself, what is this book about? It's about how people ought to conduct themselves in the household of God. And that being true, as I'm reading through this book, what can be applied to me? At my stage in life, who am I and what am I supposed to be doing? And so the question that I raised earlier is who does the work in the church? And it's a multifaceted answer. The first thing that I want to communicate is that everyone has something to be doing in the church. In 1 Peter chapter 2, in two different sections, we read in verses 4 and 5, it says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by people, but chosen and honored by God, you yourselves as living stones, a spiritual house, are being built to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then a little bit further down in verse 9, it says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, this letter in 1 Peter was not written to an individual. It was not written to a priest in a church. It was not written to a pastor in a church or an elder in a church. It was written to all of the believers in the dispersion. And so when we read this, there were ordinary people who were receiving this. And what Peter communicates to those believers is that as you think about where we came from in Judaism, you can look back and you can see a sacrificial system with priests and with structure where Men and women, when they realized that they had sin in their life, would bring an animal and they would present it before the priest and the priest would take that animal and they would slaughter it on the altar and offer it as an offering to God. But when Jesus Christ came down as a perfect sacrifice, he laid down his life and eliminated the need for an official Jewish priesthood. And when he did away with that, what it says is that he took the individual believers and he turned them into a priesthood of believers. Being, and he is building them up to be a holy priesthood. 
And what is their responsibility? What is the responsibility of every priest in the priesthood of God? It is to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So each one of us have the ability, we have the privilege, we have the responsibility of going before God and presenting him with our spiritual offerings, making spiritual sacrifices to him. But he goes on and he says that you are a royal priesthood, a people for his possession with this goal in mind, that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so what is something that everyone can do as a part of the church? Everyone who is a part of the church at one point joined the church. But how does a person gain access into the church? A person gains access into the church through the blood of the Lord Jesus. They are brought in when their sins are forgiven. And so in order to be brought in under the blood of the Lord Jesus, you have to recognize your need for this blood. Now to the Jewish person and a Jewish audience, that would make a bit more sense because they recognize the offering and sacrifices in the Old Testament. They knew who God was and what he expected, where if someone sinned, then blood must be shed. But that raises the point of a recognition of the need for a sacrifice of an offering. And so the Gentiles who hear this, they say, hey, 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 I don't, I don't want anything to do with blood offerings. That sounds pagan to me. But what it's showing to us is that we cannot do it on our own. To gain access, to gain entrance, to gain membership in the church of Christ, we can't come before God with our works. We can't come before God with our gifts. We can't buy our membership into the church. The way that we gain membership in a church is by recognizing first and foremost that we do not deserve it. By recognizing that we are a sinful and fallen people. That I am a sinner. This isn't any longer about we. This is about me. This is about you. You and I have to come to the conclusion that we have tried our best and it did not work. We have put forth every effort possible, but God looks at it as filthy rags. And so we have to humble ourselves and we have to go to the Lord and say, God, I am not worthy and I am not able. And with arms outstretched, he says, finally, <laughs> You finally get it. You finally understand that the salvation I offer, the membership into the church that I offer, is a gift by grace through faith. When a person recognizes their sinfulness, when a person recognizes their fallenness, and they look to the Lord Jesus as the only solution, it's at that point where God can welcome them into the family. Paul describes it in a couple different ways. In Ephesians 2, he says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God has made you alive in Christ. Peter here in this section says that you are a holy nation, a royal priesthood, so that you may proclaim the one who called you out of darkness 
into his marvelous light. So from death to life, from darkness to light. God finds us in our need, and he shines his light on us. And then he says, all right, now that you're a part of the family, now that you are a member of the church, here's your responsibility. Share what you know with others. Explain to others how he took you out of darkness into the light. Humble yourselves and be willing to talk about this. When we look at the beginning of 1 Timothy, Paul writes to this son in the faith, Timothy, and he says, It was by God's mercy that he has chosen me and he has brought me into his ministry. Because who was I? I was a blasphemer. I was a God hater. But he saw me and because he recognized that what I did, I did in ignorance, he saved me and he commissioned me into the work. (coughs) And Paul was not ashamed of his testimony. He was not ashamed to say to his son in the faith that, He was once a sinner, and he still struggles with sin, but God has given him light and has given him a ministry. And so that is something that each of us can do as members of the household of God. We can proclaim to others how he brought us out of darkness into his marvelous light. But when we go back into the beginning of this chapter, it seems as though the Spirit of God has placed over the church men to serve as leaders in a more official, a more recognized capacity. So there is work for everyone to to do. But when we look at the first seven verses of 1 Timothy chapter 3, we were given an introduction to what what the qualifications are of an elder in the church. And I think we, most of us understand that elders provide a spiritual oversight for a local assembly. Elders provide the shepherding that needs to go on within a local flock. They are the ones who look out over the group and they identify who has the sickness, who has the needs, who, who is broken and who needs to be bound back up. The elders are the ones who most of the time we'll labor in the word to understand what the good doctrine is so that if necessary, they can stand up to a false teacher and explain to the congregation why that teacher has been teaching something that is false. They provide a a spiritual oversight, and we saw a list of qualifications the last time I was here. But there's another group of men that God calls as leaders in his church. And these men are called deacons in verse 8. What is a deacon? Um, Literally translated, a deacon is a servant, a minister. It carries the connotation of one who waits on tables. It's It's a very practical ministry. It's someone who goes around and makes sure that the temporal needs of the assembly are being met. While it's not extremely clear, back in the the book of Acts, we see what may be the original foundation for this concept of a deacon. When the apostles 
are preaching the word and many people are getting saved in Jerusalem. And there, there are widows that are dependent upon the church for the daily distribution. They lived hand to mouth, day to day. And so every day they needed fresh supply. But it seems as though there were different types of people from different backgrounds. There were Jewish people, there were Hellenistic people, there may have been even some Gentiles. But what we see in that beginning of the church, the Hellenistic widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. And we don't know exactly why, but the apostles determined that it was too much work for them to spend their time both studying in the word, sharing the good news with the people who were being saved, and training up all of the members of this new local church so that they did not have time, and it says to be deacons, to serve or to wait tables. So they encouraged the congregation, find people of good reputation, full of faith, who can take on this ministry. And so seven were chosen. And so a lot of people believe that that is the foundation for the idea of deacons in the New Testament. The title deacon was not given to any of these men, but there are parallels in who they are and the benefits and the results of their work that we see here in our passage this evening. So anyway, if those guys were the first deacons without a title, then we get to understand a little bit of the work that a deacon is called to do. But what we see here is not so much the work or the job description outlined. But what we see are the qualifications of what it takes to become a deacon. And so to be a leader in God's church, there are certain requirements that he holds us to, that he holds individuals to. Elders had a whole list of things, including um, having a desire for the work, being able to teach, not a bully, not greedy, things like that having a good reputation. Deacons also have a list of qualifications. And so we'll spend a few minutes looking at those. It says in the beginning of verse 8, deacons likewise should be worthy of respect. Worthy of respect. There are a few environments in which a person can earn respect. I think part of this is a person who is faithful in the little things of the church can earn a certain degree of respect with, within and among the congregation there. But it also strikes me that a person can earn respect outside of the church. If a man is faithful in the work that God has given to him to do outside of the church, in a secular workplace, if he is faithful in being there and showing up and doing what is expected by his boss, then there are people on the outside of the church who can say, wow, I really respect that man. And the word likewise is there because a elder also must have a good reputation. Now, could you imagine if there is a person within this church who looks really good on Sunday mornings and Sunday evenings, and so that's all that you know of him, and you say, hey, we want to give you more responsibility here. And he gets promoted into a position of leadership, and then all of a sudden you're out walking around, you're doing evangelism at the county fair, and someone walks up and says, wait, you're here? You go to a church? You're a Christian? I never would have guessed it. Or worse, they come to you and they interact with you out in public and they're like, why would you let that guy in? 
don't you know what he's like? And so it is, it, it's vital that a person be respected, that they have a good reputation if they are going to take a position of authority because having a leader reflects on the rest of the country. We know this from our political structure. If you've ever traveled outside of the United States, one of the first questions that people will ask you is like, oh, what's your opinion of the president? Because they've already got a developed opinion of the president and they've got an opinion of you. Oh, you're an American. You're like your president. And so the, the leader reflects the congregation. So worthy of respect, not hypocritical. If a man is given a position of leadership, especially in one like this, and an elder comes to him and says, hey, what's the report on so-and-so? And he tells him what he thinks the elder wants to hear. And then he's with his friend later, and the friend brings up that topic, and he gives a report that he thinks the friend might want to hear. And they're different reports that is not good, right? To try and present two different truths does not carry with it the weight of God's truth. In our world today, we can recognize that in every teaching, in every doctrine, there is a single truth. And so to find men who are not hypocritical, who do not wear masks, who do not try and fit into different places, this is an honorable trait. Someone who will say it like it is every time he has to say it. Not drinking a lot of wine and not greedy for money. I can kind of tie these two together because in my experience, drinking wine or drinking alcohol has proven to be a very bad investment, and I am just speaking from a monetary, monetary perspective. It costs a lot of money, and so I do not find that it is a good use of my resources to, to go and regularly drink alcohol. But we see back in the Proverbs that the mother of Lemuel speaks to Lemuel, and he says, she says, it is not good for kings, O Lemuel, to drink wine, because if they drink too much wine, they will forget the law, and they will pervert justice. And so in the same way, this can carry over into our churches, where the people who have positions of authority, if they spend their time drinking too much, then all of a sudden, they lose the foundation that they have in the Lord, and it starts to starts to sway. And so it, it doesn't outright prohibit the drinking of wine. We're actually going to see later in Paul's letters to Timothy that he encourages Timothy to take some wine for medicinal purposes. And so I don't think we can draw a super harsh, strict line on if you're going to be a leader in the church, you must not even touch the stuff. But I think that with moderation, and there's a lot of things in Scripture that would might keep a person from indulging in this, but that might be left up to an individual's conscience. Not greedy for money. Imagine for a second back in Acts chapter 6 that you were one of the deacons or one of those who were chosen to serve and to distribute the daily rations to these widows. What do you think would happen if you had greed in your heart? We know what happened to Judas, do we not? who always wanted to put his hand in the money bag and take it out of the communal, communal pot and put it into his own pocket. He was a man that was driven by what he could get out of it. 
And so if you set up a man at a position like this and you say, we need you to take care of the finances, make sure they all get distributed evenly, if he has greed in his heart, it just might enter his mind of no one's looking. I've got a car payment coming due, and I promise to return the money to the pot after I make my car payment when I get paid again. But that can devolve so quickly. So a man who has expressed in his life a desire to set money above everything else is not a man who is qualified to serve in a leadership role, especially in one that deals with finances and the temporal needs of an assembly like this. And indeed, a deacon must hold the mystery of faith with a clear conscience. That means they must be saved. They must have a relationship with the Lord. There is a mystery as to how God saves people. And they must be able to wrap their head around it and say, I understand it because God has saved me. And I can share it with others because I know it to be true. So having a clear conscience. They also must be tested. If they prove blameless, then they can serve as deacons. That just seems like wise counsel from the apostle to say, a man, if you give him a little bit of responsibility, see how he does with it. And then if he does well, give him a little bit more responsibility and allow him to grow into this position. There's no reason to just have a man jump into taking over this aspect. We're not in a race here. The church is going to be around for a long time, so easing a man in and letting him be tested is wise counsel. Then we get to uh, verse 11. And the word that starts here in my translation says wives. Um, the King James says their wives, but the word in Greek is women. And so it raises a whole host of questions as to whether women can serve as deacons or not. But here's what we know. Wives, too, must be worthy of respect, not slanderers, self-controlled, faithful, and everything. And so if a woman can serve as a deacon, these things must be true of her. But even if we do not have women in official capacity like this, these must be true of the wives of those who serve as a deacon. And the reason this is so is because if a deacon is wanting to serve the Lord with everything that he has, and his wife is a gossip and a slanderer lacking self-control, they will be pulling in opposite directions. Any work that the deacon or this man with responsibility wants to do is going to be constantly undermined. If part of his job is to encourage the body and to build it up in unity and his wife is over on the corner whispering slander about someone in the congregation, it's going to make his work that much harder. But then we get into verse 12, and it says deacons are to be the husband of one wife. And so this might add some clarity as to the issue of whether women's, women are allowed to have a leadership capacity like this. Um, if we were to read this literally, then God is saying that this is a role for men. This is a role for a, a man who is married to a woman that meets this qualification. And so one of the things if taken literally is that the man who wants to serve in this capacity is that he is married and that he has children and that he is able to manage his children and his household competently. 
This is something that reflects what elders are to do as well. Because a person who serves in the household of God has a built-in natural practice ground at home. And so when a man proves himself able to care for his wife and to love his children and encourage them to be respectful to him, then what he can be faithful, when he can be faithful in a small thing like the home, then it is more likely that he can be faithful on a larger scale, like that of a local church. And then we see some really amazing encouragement in verse 13. For those who have served well as deacons acquire a good standing for themselves and great boldness in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. And so when we go back to Acts chapter 6 and then into chapter 7, we see that Philip and Stephen, two of the men who were named to wait on the tables at the beginning, became bold evangelists for the Lord. Stephen in particular, it says that he was able to argue against the Jews and to prove to them that Jesus was the Messiah. And he got to be so bold, and he did it with such conviction that they took him outside and they stoned him. But talk about great boldness. To be willing to stand up in that type of opposition to be willing to know that even if the people I am talking to are going to kill me, yet I will stand for the truth. These are the type of guys that we want serving in our churches, is it not? And so, as we summarize, the last time I spoke, we talked about elders and the qualifications that they must have. Now there are deacons as well, which I see as a role that should be had in in churches where as the elders are dealing with the spiritual aspect of things, they can have trusted men that they can pass off the work to. But then we see, going back to the beginning of my talk and the end of chapter 3, that there's something for everyone to be doing in the church. Now, men and women, as we look at this, something else that we can be doing in the church is trying to live up to these standards. So even if you are not currently qualified to be an elder, or a deacon, or even a deacon's wife, we can look at this list and say, what am I lacking? Do I fall short in hospitality? Could I improve in my ability to teach? Is money the focus of my life? What steps can I take to get greed out of my life? Do I drink alcohol to excess? Women, are you worthy of respect? When others look at you, do they say, that's someone that I trust? That's someone I would go to for advice, even if you're young. And even if you're not the most mature in your faith, you can set this as a goal for yourself later on in the future. Do you practice self-control? Are you faithful in the little things that God has given us to do, given you to do? And so I close again by saying that I love the church. The Lord Jesus loves the church. He died to build the church. He is doing a work in our local assemblies and throughout the world, and he has chosen you and me to be his hands and feet to do this work. And so where do you fit in? Does your lifestyle prove to yourself, prove to others, and prove to God that you love the church? Let's close in prayer. 
Our Father, we're grateful for the word that we've had before us this evening. We thank you, Lord, for choosing to work with fallen, sinful humans, for allowing sinners into your kingdom, for allowing sinners into your church. And Lord, you have given us the Holy Spirit, and you have given us gifts, and you have given us responsibilities. And so I pray your blessing on each one in this room, that you would continue to mature them, that you would grow them in their obedience to the faith, that they would serve faithfully in the little places that you've put them, and that you would grow and expand their impact so that many might come to see the glory of the Lord Jesus. We pray that through this church and through our lives, he might be magnified. So it's in his precious name we pray. Amen.